0: I hope that today you'll consider the two stories that I'm going to tell you about. Um, I hope they resonate with you. And uh, they did happen four or 500 years ago, and you may say that's not very applicable right now. But I think considering the times we live in, it's very applicable right now, maybe even more so. And I hope you'll consider that. Um, Sisters in Arms is a book I got this last fall and read and it had contained eight stories of some very courageous women. Uh, last time, the ones that are checked, the one on your far left at the top, Katharina von Bora, she's the one that married Martin Luther, and we talked about her. And then next to right on the bottom, Marie Durand, we studied about her too. And she was imprisoned for her faith for the majority of her life. This time, we're going to talk about Catherine Parr, and Louise de Toligny. Now, they lived in a time, like I said, in the 1500s, 1600s. Um, Protestantism was spreading. It was quickly embraced by members of the, no, of the nobility, the intellectual elite, and the professional people in trades, medicine, and crafts. And I believe that's mostly because they were a thinking people and they knew how to read. It was a respectable movement involving the most responsible and accomplished people in Europe. It signified their desire for greater freedom, both religiously and politically. And the Protestant movement was growing rapidly. But, you know, change doesn't come easy. There was still much persecution and death involved with this movement. And the powers that be, first of all, the Catholic Church, and who was the other, who was the political power at this time in, in Europe? Kings and queens, the royalty. Yeah, I, I'm not even talking about that, but they were, they were on the top of the heap. But I was talking about kings and queens. Those people did not want to, uh, things to change either. They wanted to remain in power. But the stories today are about two ladies, but it's not just about them. Many more people were involved. And we will start with Catherine Parr. Catherine was born to nobility. Her father was knighted during Henry VIII's coronation. And her mother served as a lady-in-waiting to Henry's first wife, who was Queen Catherine. Queen Catherine with a C was the godmother to Catherine Parr with a K, her namesake. But Catherine's father died when she was quite young, but her mother made sure she received a good education and she married well. Actually, her first two husbands died very early deaths, but it left her quite a well-to-do widow at at age 31, and Catherine then decided to go to London to visit friends, and she came in contact with many in the royal court, and there she caught King Henry's attention. Henry VIII was considered a handsome man in his youth, was very athletic, six feet tall, but... Henry had changed a jousting accident. He loved exercise and sports and doing things, and jousting is where they get on two guys get on horses with all their armor and one on each side of the field, and they have these big, long poles, and they go and try to knock each other off or whatever. It's rather gruesome, but anyway... At one on one of these jousting incidents, he was knocked off the horse, and not only that—that wouldn't have been so bad—but the horse fell on top of him. And you know how you get your breath knocked out of you? Well, they said his breath was knocked out of him for two hours. They thought he was going to die, but he didn't. But he ended up with a horrible leg injury that caused him problems, and he was no longer able to exercise. And he ate huge amounts of food. So Henry VIII became quite portly. He had a 60-inch waist, and he weighed almost 400 pounds. Not good. But anyway, Catherine caught the eye of Henry VIII, and he was very interested in her. Well, Catherine was quite aware that the king already had had five wives. She was hardly able to believe that this was happening to her because she knew the history of these five wives. Well, Catherine, we'll start at the top, and go that row, and then the next one. Catherine of Aragon was his first wife for 24 years. They had a son, but he only lived for four months. Their daughter Mary was born, but Catherine was unable to produce a male heir to the throne, which is what Henry wanted, although she had several miscarriages, so he banished her. His second marriage was to Anne Boleyn. That lasted three and a half years. It produced another child, a daughter, Elizabeth, and then she was beheaded. Jane Seymour was the third marriage. It lasted a year and a half. It did produce a son, Edward, and Jane died shortly after from childbirth complications. Now then his wife, number four, was Anne of Cleves. And that marriage was annulled after six months because Henry said it was never consummated, and after that he referred to her as his sister. Wife number five was Catherine Howard. She was only sixteen when they got married. He was in his upper forties. During the eighth month, I mean eighteen month marriage, she had an affair with one of his courtiers, so he had her beheaded. With all that to think about, Catherine was natural. Naturally, very reluctant to marry Henry, knowing all that had happened to his former wives. But she was also aware that refusing him could have serious consequences for herself and her family. In her own words, I have caught the attention of the wife killer, and now I am trapped like a mouse. When he asks me to marry him, I cannot speak I stand there staring at him until I feel my sister's elbow digging sharply into my side. I finally dip into a low curtsy. You you flatter me, your your majesty, I murmur, my head bowed toward the ground. He grunts and then laughs. I expect you are beside yourself with joy, eh, he says. I feel my cheeks grow hot and I keep my head low, praying he will indeed think I am beside myself with joy and not realize I'm actually beside myself with dread. Rise, Lady Latimer, he says. I slowly rise, my hands clasped nervously in front of him. You need not answer my suit today. He waves a large, heavy hand in front of him, airily, as I suppress the urge to shudder. He's a large man, tall and broad, and I cannot help but think of his big hand squeezing my slender neck. To say that I'm afraid of him would be an understatement. He is imposing in every way, not only in size, but also in presence. And there's something about him that's menacing. His face is large and round, his double chin puffed out a little, making his lips look thin and small. His eyes are beady, darting around his jeweled cap, taking my measure as though I were a piece of meat at the butcher's. Of all the women he could have cast his eyes on, it is I who now face the peril of becoming his sixth wife. For I know as surely as the sun rises in the east, I cannot refuse him. No one refuses this king. I do not think anyone has refused him anything since he was a child. When Henry wants something, he gets it, even if he has to wade through blood to secure it. I managed to mumble some sort of promise about giving him my answer before long, and then I leave the room as quickly as decorum will permit. Her sister and brother not only encouraged her to marry Henry, they tell her it's something she must do. Historians show that she was actually engaged to another man at the time, Thomas Seymour, but uh, it was they were quiet about it, and uh, they both sacrificed and thought it would be best to keep that thought silent and allow her to marry the king and it probably would have saved his head too but King Henry did become aware of their relationship and he was jealous so he gave Seymour a job and sent him to the embassy in Brussels Belgium got rid of him (laughs) and he didn't have to kill him two months later Henry VIII and Catherine are married she was 31 he was 51 She was tall, very intelligent, well-educated, but religion in England at that time was just as confusing as Henry's beliefs were. Now, remember, Henry had had the Pope thrown out so he could divorce his first wife, Queen Catherine. He then declared himself the Pope, head of the Church of England, but that didn't mean he had adopted the Reformed faith or the Protestant faith. He liked certain parts. He was glad that the English people had the Bible in English. Uh, But he didn't like Luther's teachings about justification by faith. Henry found comfort in believing that his own works would get him to heaven. Well, now, at that time, Catherine really wasn't sure what she believed. Her first, first husband had had reformist leanings, and her second one was strongly Catholic. And Catherine had a copy of the Bible, but only read it occasionally. Well, shortly after their marriage, there was a plague of sweating sickness that swept through London, leaving carloads of dead in its wake. Since Henry was terrified of any disease, he decided they should take a long, extended honeymoon, which lasted six months. During that time, she found him, he wasn't as fearful as she thought him to be, and she said her affection for him grew, but she never did fall in love with him. Catherine felt the best part of being Queen of England was her role as stepmother to the children. Now, the thing was, I thought it was interesting. This was the only picture I could find of Henry and the three children. The other person is a servant. Um, Was the fact that when she married him, Mary was 27 years old. She was only four years younger than Catherine. But Edward and Elizabeth were still young and she enjoyed making sure she had a part in seeing that they had a Protestant education. And I think another reason that Henry might have had the picture done this way, he wanted Edward to succeed him on the throne, and he took Mary and Elizabeth out of the line of succession. But this makes it look like Edward is the oldest, even though he was not. Her other passion at the Queen's court... It was the queen's court. As queen, she had all the scholarship of the world at her fingertips. She could have speakers come in and talk. And it led her to discover the Bible. And now she had the freedom and the time to explore the Bible more deeply. And she began to relish each moment that she studied. And her room was filled with other reform-minded ladies who also diligently studied the scriptures. And they could talk and share about what they learned. They were safe in this little area, and they listened to many well known Protestant leaders and thinkers. One of the speakers they heard was a lady named Anne Askew. She was an English poet, a writer, and an Anabaptist preacher. They heard her several times and were so impressed with her abilities, she set the ladies ablaze with her scripture knowledge. She could answer any Bible question they asked. However, She became the only English woman tortured on the rack in the Tower of London and then burned at the stake. Simply for being a Christian and her possible reformist influence on the queen, they actually tortured her to see if she would implicate Queen Catherine's Protestant views, but she did not. Now, when Henry and Catherine visit, she shared what the ladies were learning. He was quite jovial and incredibly intelligent, and they had good, deep theological discussions. And she and the ladies also began translation of a little book, Psalms and Prayers, from Latin into English. Well, Henry's official court had some reformers, but many of them were not, and they did everything possible to return England to the bosom of the Pope. Well, Henry wanted none of that, he quite enjoyed being the head of the church and the pope, as you called it. No one is ever quite certain where he drew the lines of religious belief. If they overstepped those lines, they paid the price. He burned Catholics for wanting to return to Rome, but he also burned Lutherans for denouncing the mass. So it was a confusing time. In public, Catherine was quiet and tried to figure out what the king believed. But in private, she freely shared her thoughts with them. But one time, Catherine's brother brought her news that the same ones responsible for Anne Askew's arrest and torture wanted to have Catherine killed too. She decided to lay low for a while. But after Anne's death, she found herself debating with Henry more and more. Well, one evening, Henry commented, A good hearing it is when women become so learned and a great comfort to me in my old age to be taught by my wife. She immediately felt lightheaded. She knew she had overstepped her bounds. And that was reinforced that evening when Dr. Wendy, who was the king's physician, came to warn her. He brought her a copy of Bill of Articles signed by the king himself for Catherine's arrest. After sobbing and wailing, her sister came in and shook her back into reality. She said, it's possible because Henry is old and feeble, he already has a male heir to the throne, and because he's fond of you, he may still listen to you. So after much prayer, a sleepless night, and a decision of what she was willing to die for, she had a plan. Much of the next day was spent in prayer and Bible reading. That evening, she carefully dressed and went to the king's room, as usual. He launched into a lively Bible topic, and then he asked, What think you, my dear Kate? Her response, Since God has appointed such a natural difference between man and woman, and your majesty is so excellent in gifts of wisdom, And I, a silly woman, so much inferior in all respects of nature to you, how come your majesty comes to me to inquire my judgment in such causes of religion? And she held her breath. Not so, he snaps. You're as learned as any doctor, Kate, qualified to instruct us and not be directed by us. Kate then launched into a lengthy and impassioned assurance that this was not her desire at all. She assured him that she longed to be instructed by a husband as wise and virtuous as he, and she had only tried to converse with him in such a lively way to help occupy his mind and take his thoughts off of his pain and his physical ailments. Henry was pleased, he exclaimed. Is it even so, sweetheart, my dear Kate? Your arguments were to distract me from my pain? then perfect friends we shall be. And just like that, all was forgotten. Catherine thought, as long as Henry is told we will not cross him, he's happy and everything is fine. Well, it wasn't too long after that incident, which was three and a half years into their marriage, Henry died. And Catherine sat at the ceremony and marveled. Of all his wives, it is I who have survived. I've not been the most outspoken, the most courageous, or even the most foolish. Yet, I have survived. And now, what will I do? I have so many things I want to accomplish. Perhaps the most significant thing I can do is to finally publish my books that I have kept hidden for fear of the king. Well, with Henry's death, a new day dawned for England. Prince Edward, his son, a reformist, remember he had been raised Protestant, she'd done her job. He was crowned prince at the age of nine. Her influence, of course he had other people actually ruling, but he was there. Her influence over this young boy had turned his heart to the scriptures and to reform. But soon after Henry's death, she got back with Sir Thomas Seymour, the one she was previously engaged to, and married. And a year and a half later, she gave birth to her first and only child, Mary Seymour. And then she died a couple of days later from childbirth. Her translated and original works, though, helped to spread the truth she embraced through England and other parts of Europe. This is evident in her book from 1547 called Lamentations of a Sinner in which she makes the, the argument for the then radical doctrine of salvation based on faith alone. That was a new, a novel concept because back then everybody thought you had to work your way to heaven. Now her care in educating Prince Edward and Princess Elizabeth in the Reformed faith changed the religious direction of a nation she definitely had an impact on England, Europe, and the world because Edward reigned for six years from 9 to, eight to 15, and then Mary, their older sister, who was Bloody Mary, reigned for a few years, and then she died, but then Queen Elizabeth I, that was the Elizabeth, she reigned for 44 years. So you take that 6 and 44 and you come up with 50 That is a half century of a Protestant impact on England, and it changed it. So many people think being a mom isn't important. It's very important. And she wasn't their physical mom, but her influence on the lives of those two impacted the world. Okay, our next person was Louise Caligny. Caligny. And her story is larger, too, much more than just about her. She was nobility and born into wealth, as you can see. Uh, That's not a bad-looking house for right now. I mean, that's huge. But um, back then in 1555, it was really something. Her mom was Charlotte de Laval, and her dad's name was Gaspard de Coligny. He was son of one of the great noble houses in the kingdom, and he was also an admiral in France. And before Louise was two years old, her father was imprisoned after a battle. Now, during this imprisonment, he'd be able, he was able to get a copy of the Bible and John Calvin's writings, and he accepted the Reformed faith, or the Protestant faith. Now, before that, everybody in the family, I mean, most everybody in Europe was Roman Catholic. That's all there was. Um, but he became what was called a Huguenot That's the French term for the Calvinist Protestant reformers. And once that happened, their home changed. She said, the chapel was stripped bare. The saints' pictures were removed. The great crucifix was taken down. And the monstrance was disposed of. And I thought, what is a monstrance? I never heard of that before, but I didn't grow up Catholic. If you did, you might know what it is. It's the, the, the round one in the middle, and they say that the host, which is the, the bread, for the communion bread, only they call it Eucharistic, they believe that actually once the priest prays for the bread, it actually is Jesus. Anyway, and they put it in the hole in the middle there, and I thought, and I, and I looked up several of these on the internet. You can buy these things now, I guess if you're Catholic and you have church, you can buy them, and some of them have crosses on them. Some don't even have crosses. But I noticed they all, every single one of them, had the rays of the sun in the, right around the, the host. Now, it certainly appears to me like that's sun worship. Just, just saying. I'm not Catholic. I don't know. <laughs> Instead of incense and candles, it smelled like fresh paint in their chapel. The altar was replaced with a table table and a Bible on it, and instead of chapel bells and daily mass, they gathered morning and evening to read psalms and listen to a sermon. They prayed directly to God instead of the saints, and they never prayed again with beads in their fingers. Louise was grateful for this faith, but it did exact a heavy price on their family, not only hers, but being a Huguenot was a very big deal at that time. Another change came three years later. The Catholics and the Huguenots were at odds, and as admiral, her father was asked to lead the Huguenots. Louise heard her parents' muffled voices one night as she held her ear to their bedroom door. Can you? How can you rest comfortably in your bed when your Huguenot brothers lie butchered in a field? Her mother sobbed. We must do something. Then she heard her father's voice. Will you lay your hand on your heart? and say that you are willing to bear the cost? Are you willing to lose everything, our houses, our lands? Are you willing to watch your husband join the ranks of the dead and mutilated in the fields, and your sons to join those ranks? Have you counted the cost, Charlotte? After a long silence, I heard my mother's voice. I have, she said quietly. I am willing to lose my life. In the life of those I love for Christ, Gaspard if I were not, then I am not worthy of my calling that night changed the course of their lives at 16 Louise, Mary, Louise de Caligny married Charles de Taligny a Huguenot soldier who trained and had fought with her father she loved him very much and I just thought it was kind of interesting Caligny married Taligny rhyming names after years of fighting, there was a great desire for peace. And her family, her parents, and, and she and her husband found themselves in Paris for a wedding. And that was of King Henry of Navarre, and that's a par- place in southwestern France and northern Spain, that area, and Princess Margaret, who was the King of France, King Louis' um, sister. Well, he was a Huguenot, and she was Catholic. That's not a good idea, but anyway. The union between the two was designed to heal the rifts between Catholicism and Protestantism and also to end the political conflicts between the two families. However, the wedding could not have come at a worse time for the country. The royal family was trying to raise taxes for this big celebration, and the crops failed. The opulent displays to celebrate this match fueled the resentment of the starving French population toward the elite. Tensions between Catholics and Protestants kept on, and the Pope condemned the union. He didn't think they should get married. The Catholic nations of Europe didn't think they should either. They opposed the religious tolerance that the wedding represented. And all the members of the parliament in Paris said, we're not coming to the wedding. But despite the protest, the royal family did not cancel it. So on August 18, 1572, the wedding took place. The groom took his vows with a nod on his face and an eye will, and the bride remained silent. She had a defiant tilt in her chin and anger flashing in his eyes. As you can tell, this was not a match of love. Her mother and her brother had forced her into this, and it was clear that she didn't like being sacrificed on the altar of the best interests of the kingdom. Finally, her brother, the king, snorted, oh, for heaven's sakes, Margot!" and then he glanced at the cardinal performing the ceremony and snapped, she's in agreement, proceed. That was the wedding. After the celebrations, the elite Huguenots stayed in Paris for meetings with the king and to renegotiate peace terms, and Louise stayed as her father and her husband were both involved. Four days after the wedding, there was an assassination attempt on her father, the admiral. As he walked home from the meetings, an assassin shot him, injuring him. But his servants and some witnesses carried him to his rooms, and the king's physicians stabilized him, and he was very fortunate. He only sustained injuries to his hand and arm. Now, even though King Charles had promised safety to all the Huguenots, it's believed that he and his advisors, and especially his mother, had agreed to the executions of the highest-ranking Huguenots left in the city. Well, the city guards closed off the city, and groups of Catholic nobles marched through Paris in the early hours of August 24, 1572, led the targeted Huguenots out of their homes and executed them on the street. Men stormed the Coligny's house and killed his servants before they stabbed the admiral. They threw his body out of his bedroom window, then they mutilated it and paraded it in the streets. Within hours, that violence incited all the people of Paris. This was called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Between 10,000 and 100,000 Huguenots were killed by Catholics who prowled the streets. They destroyed businesses and homes, rioted, looted, and they murdered Protestants of all ranks, women, children, and babies. As the dead bodies piled up, they tossed them into the Seine River. Now, a couple of days later, King Charles issued a statement saying, end the violence, enough of this. But despite that, the murders continued for the next three days, and similar outbreaks of violence spread throughout the country till the end of the year. Now, the queen mother, I showed a minute ago, Catherine de Medici, was a staunch Catholic, and she was very responsible. After it was over, she wanted to come out and view the carnage of the vermin, as she called the Huguenots. That's a sad statement. But the morning her father was murdered, her husband sent Louise away with these words, I need you to be brave. You are the daughter of a commander, the wife of a soldier. You are a Caligny, but more than that, you are a Huguenot. You know this is our legacy. With our last breath, we will fight for freedom. If we must wade through blood and fire to remain faithful, then we will do it. She grabbed her psalms, the dagger her husband gave her, and threw on her hooded cape. She ran in the shadows by herself across the river where Huguenot soldiers, and that's probably what they looked like, were stationed outside the city. As she left the city, she saw Huguenot men, women, and children being slaughtered like animals she knew her only hope was in God, and she turned her eyes upward and prayed a silent prayer from the Psalms. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. She and one of the Huguenot soldiers sent to protect her rode for two days and nights with no sleep before arriving in Bern, Switzerland, and from there she met with her stepmother and her two brothers, and they traveled on to Basel, Switzerland, which was her cousin's home and safety. Reports of the massacre were beginning to trickle out. Throughout Europe, that massacre imprinted on Protestant minds the indelible conviction that Catholicism was a bloody and treacherous religion. The crown confiscated the family's assets, denounced them as heretics. Then they wrote and said they would give them back their land and welcome them home to France if they would simply renounce their faith. Their response, you can have our land, but our consciences will remain safe in the hands of God where they belong. We will not acknowledge the Mass. We will not renounce the Bible. And above all, we will live and die free. It's basically the only way to live. Charles was murdered in the Louvre, and Louise received news of that a short time later. It was because he would not give up his Protestant faith. So there she is. She's 17 years old now. She had become a widow and an orphan almost all at once. But she and her stepmother, her brothers, and with each other for refuge and their faith, that was enough. Louise says, my losses turned me to Calvary. The 22nd Psalm echoes in my soul, and I know Jesus understands my heart. He has walked through the very valley I now traverse, I can place my feet in his footprints and know there is light at the end of this journey. God knows the pain of separation and loss, and I feel his hand in mine. So 11 years later, later when she was 28, she remarried William the Silent. He was Prince of Orange, and I looked that up, and Orange is a portion of southern France, And William and others helped the Dutch people gain their freedom from Spain and become an independent state. So if you ever see people in Holland wearing orange, it goes back to this man and what he did. He was a champion of truth and freedom, a very strong Protestant. But a year and three months later, he was assassinated by a Catholic for bounty money. Their only son... Their only child, a son named Frederick, was born four months later. She raised their son and William's six daughters from a previous marriage, and she was also guardian for most of William's 16 children. Louise lived to be 65. In her remaining years, she was active in politics because of her ties to many influential Protestant families and also the king. And I thought, why were many Protestants so influential? I think it's because they had the Protestant we call it the Protestant work ethic and God's blessings. I think he shows mercy to thousands of them that love him. And they had embraced new light even on pain of death. She was a st- strong proponent of the Dutch Reformation and contributed greatly to the growth of the Reformation in the Netherlands. Their family had counted the cost. They'd also paid the price. However, they knew there was light at the end of the journey. They knew about heaven. They knew the reward. Louise said, His everlasting arms are beneath me, that every scar on my soul is not foreign to him. He knows what it's like to lose those he loves. He knows what it's like to be separated from those dear to his heart. He knows my pain, and that is enough to brace me for whatever else may come. Bow your heads, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that you will help us each and every day to be strong, strong for you, to lift up Jesus. And we need to remember that when we leave these doors, we're entering the mission field. (coughs) We just pray that you'll give us your love and your blessings and your words for all that we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.